on the record flips to the B side. Whether you're into science fiction or fantasy, romance or history, books are the way in. I'm Mia Lobel, and today we'll hear stories about people with a passion for the page, as On the Record flips to the B-side. American writer Eudora Welty wrote, I cannot remember a time when I was not in love with them, with the books themselves, cover and binding, and the paper they were printed on, with their smell and their weight, and with their possession in my arms, captured and carried off to myself. I can't help but agree with her. Fantasy and adventure were my thing growing up. Now I'm a pretty hardcore fiction lover, but I can't remember a time when I wasn't into reading something. That's the way it's been for a lot of us on the B-Side crew, which led us to think about what life might be like without books. And now, Fahrenheit 451. It was a pleasure to burn. It was a special pleasure to see things eaten, to see things blackened and changed. With a brass nozzle in his fists... With the great python spitting its venomous kerosene upon the world, the blood pounded in his head, and his hands were the hands of some amazing conductor playing... Ray Bradbury's classic science fiction story explores what the world would be like if books were banned. Not just banned, but burned by trained firemen. He describes a kind of apocalypse where society is obsessed with television, higher education is obsolete, and the few remaining intellectuals are forced into hiding. The B-Side crew caught up with some folks outside of a local bookstore to get some live readings from Fahrenheit 451 and to find out how book lovers' lives would change if Bradbury's fiction became a reality. He strode in a swarm of fireflies. He wanted above all, like the old joke, to shove a marshmallow on a stick in the furnace while the flapping pigeon-winged books died on the porch and lawn of the house. Montag grinned, the fierce grin of all men singed and driven back by flame. Do you ever read any of the books you burned? He laughed. That's against the law. Oh, of course. It's fine. It's fine work. Monday, burn Malay. Wednesday, Whitman. Friday, Faulkner. Burn him to ashes, then burn the ashes. That's our official slogan. I, I read a lot, so I think it'd be tor- horrible. I don't know what I'd do. I'd probably just lie on the couch and <laughs> read, the, read the New Yorker. That's what I'd do. If they ban books, I'd read the New Yorker, because I read that too. Obviously, if you're hanging out in front of a bookstore, reading is a big part of your life. But there are millions of adults across the country who can't read, and only a fraction of them ever learn how. Roxandra Gidi brings us this story of a 53-year-old man who's learning to read for the first time. Four years ago, Shedrick Ferguson couldn't read signs, directions, or job applications. He had to get help from his wife and his children on even some of the most basic tasks. But then, after years of embarrassment and frustration, Shedrick finally decided he wanted to learn to read. I knew that for me to get a good job, a satisfying job that pays good, and to uh, execute my ideas and plans in the way I want to live, I would have to be able to read. And here I am now. Once a week, Shadrick visits the public library in downtown San Francisco. He walks through the building's airy and wide atrium and up the stairs to the office of Project Read, 
an adult literacy program that matches tutors with people like Shedrick. The small classroom is full of computers and paperbacks for young adults. Many other new learners, like Shadrick, are here too, meeting with volunteer tutors. Shadrick works with Michelle Robinson. Prosperous. Prosperous. Oh, prosperous. Prosper. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've always loved to read. I, I read a lot and use it as an escape as well as, as uh, something to expand myself. So I thought that that was kind of a natural thing to try to help other people with. Michelle says they started with the basics, slowly sounding out words. Now Shadra can look up the words he doesn't understand in a dictionary, and he sometimes rereads paragraphs over and over again for practice. Michelle says a few months ago something clicked. Somebody that he works with gave him a copy of uh, a, The Call of the Wild, and we started reading it, and he just he got hooked. And we had we'd read small books, we'd read books that were written. Um, for young adults or for kids, but this was like the first real adult book that the action in it just caught him. It's very educational. It's like I speak words and I had never seen the words before on paper. Sounds like chick, chick, some stuff like that, and like that's how, that's what it looks like. Wow. Shadrach has since moved on to other books. His favorites these days are about history and architecture. On this day, he and Michelle are working on a book called Historic San Francisco. In, eight, in 1884, tragedy struck Leland Stanford, Jr. Leland and Jane Stanford, only child died, died of typhoid. Shadrach is finally typhoid. learning what most people learned when they were kids in school. He traces the roots of his illiteracy back to his childhood in Mississippi. The schools that I went to did not teach. Uh, they only taught the ones that was very in interested, uh, either the ones that uh, showed progress. They did not mainline anyone, like, see that I'm getting a D, uh, F, and then bring it to my attention and say, this is what you got to do to correct this if you want to pass this class. And also, my mother and father was illiterate. They did not inbred in, in education into me. For most of his adult life, Shadrach says he has been ashamed of his inability to read or write. Now, he reads to his grandchildren, something he regrets not having been able to do for his own kids. His favorite children's book, The Fox and Socks. I really like that book because you can get it in a rhythm, and when you get the rhythm going, you have accomplish something because it's just you, it, it's a tongue twister and so if you can get the rhythm and don't get your tongue twisted you accomplish something especially when you want to read it with pizzazz and emphasis and make somebody laugh and say wow man Shadrach loves to read out loud now unlike the days in elementary school when he would shy away from reading in class reading has changed his life so much that at 53, he's going to college for the first time. But he's still going to the library every week to read with Michelle. That this would be, no, okay, that this was the beginning of a railroad empire that would make them all rich. For B-Side, I'm Rexandra Giedi. Wow, Very good. sure is, yeah. guy. Yeah, okay, well, so we don't need to read it all. Yeah. Well, let's go through and look at the words. It's so hard. <laughs> <laughs>
But Montag did not move and only stood thinking of the ventilated grill in the hall at home and what lay hidden behind the grill. If someone here in the firehouse knew about the ventilator, then mightn't they tell the hound? I've tried to imagine, said Montag, just how it would feel. I mean, to have firemen burn our houses and our books. We haven't any books, but if we did have some, you got some? In Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, books are routinely destroyed with fire, reducing them to ashes. Berkeley artist Jim Rosenow also changes the nature of books, but not quite in the same way. Peter Crimmins has this profile. Well, I've always lived in houses full of books. There were 5,000 books in my house when I was a kid. My father was in the publishing industry, and I guess he got books for free or cheap regularly. But on rainy days, we'd count the books. It was just a game, and they were like wallpaper in our house. And to me, it's comforting to see walls lined with books. I've always read. I always thought I was somebody who should write a book before he was dead. And it was on the list of things to do. You know, go to Alaska, catch a steelhead, write a book. And I never, I don't want to write a book. I don't want to sit still that long. I've changed my relationship to books, but I still love them just as much. The books surrounding Jim Rosenau in his home in Berkeley, California, are not records of his reading life, nor are they rare books safely set in display cases. These are the raw material of his carpentry project. Jim makes bookshelves out of these books. He guts them of their pages, lays them end to end, and runs a wooden support through them. And with these literary planks composed of paperboard and spine, he assembles bookcases and hanging shelves. To start with, I don't like to work with books that people want to read. I don't work with books that have been made in the last 50 years for the most part. Uh, And I don't work with paperbacks. So we're talking about old hardback books that have been discarded or being sold very cheaply. There's certain colors that were used a lot 50 to 100 years ago. Uh, Reds, greens being the most popular, but blues and browns and sometimes black. I, I could be the only person in the world who sorts his library by color. I don't know. Where do you find books? Well, I get most of them from a recycling center and where people go to drop off books and pick up books. Every week, Rosano drives a few miles north to the El Cerrito Recycle Center. Off to the side from the dumpsters filled with paper, glass, and aluminum are overstuffed bookshelves surrounded by cardboard boxes filled with more books. What books are you looking for? You can't do this while you're looking for something. You have to respond to what is here. What's here then? Um, I always take the power of positive thinking whenever I see it. Do you find that a lot? Yeah. Why the power of positive thinking? I think it's a book that people have an immediate reaction to. Um, They don't like the book. They've seen it, but they certainly haven't read it. So it's a joke book. Um, it's actually got a lot of perfectly reasonable things in it. You've read it yourself, then? Uh, I've, I've, you know, dabbled at it. Another type of book I like is ones that have really strong, active statements that address the reader. Do cats think? Don't look now? You know, a short, sharp English sentence. Because then you can combine them with something else. I combined um, two books this week. Who pushed Humpty Dumpty with never plead guilty? Then, you know, neither of them is interesting by themselves, but it's you put them together and they start to talk to each other in a way that was, wasn't intended. 
Back in his home, Rosano adds these forgotten books to his library of curiosities. The Wonderful Book of the Air, Clothing for Moderns, A Treasury of Philosophy, even a tome entitled Meat Hygiene. Like lambs for the slaughter, these books will have their pages torn out, their hardcovers will be glued around a wooden armature, and they'll be made into furniture. Although stripped of the stories they once told, the juxtaposition of their titles will tell other stories. Rosano's golfing shelf, for example, includes the title The World of Professional Golf, supported by copies of Come Fill the Cup, Back Trouble, and Mental Defect. I do it all on a tabletop. I lay it out, I look at it, and if I think I have it right, then I don't do anything. I go to bed and I wake up and I still see if I still think that's a good idea in the morning. Um, and in a way, that's a lot like editing. You compose the piece, you look at it, and then you try to look at it again with fresh eyes. There's a structure to the finished piece, just as there is with writing. It's like haiku, it's very rigid. So there are these rules, and I like rules. I like a lot of rules, and then I like to pound my way out of that box. On top, the first one says to read or not to read. It's about dyslexia, whether or not it's important for kids to learn how to read who are dyslexic. And then on the far side, we've got part of the furniture, which I just love the irony of that. It's probably a novel. I never read it. I just cut it up. And then in the middle, the piece de resistance says irony in English literature. It's tiny little gold text. You have to get real close to see it. It's about books. It is books. But then it talks about furniture and it talks about whether or not to even read in the first place, capped off with irony. What more could you ask for? For B-Side, I'm Peter Crimmins. If you'd like to see some of Jim Rosano's handiwork, check out thisintothat.com. It's pretty cool stuff. listening to KALX 90.7 FM. Stay tuned as On the Record flips to the B-side. listening to B-Side. I'm Mia Lobel, and this month we're exploring the power of books. Throughout the show, we've been listening to passages from Ray Bradbury's science fiction classic, Fahrenheit 451. The B-Side crew stopped people outside a local bookstore and asked them to read and reflect on this book about a world where books are banned. The books lay like great mounds of fishes left to dry. The men danced and slipped and fell over them. Titles glittered, their golden eyes falling gone. Once, books appealed to a few people, here, there, everywhere. They could afford to be different. The world was roomy. But then the world got full of eyes and elbows and mouths. Double, triple, quadruple population. 
films and radios, magazines, books leveled down to a sort of paste-pudding norm. Do you follow me? They turned to stare at the door, and the books toppled everywhere. Everywhere, in heaps. Montag picked a single small volume from the floor. Where do we begin? He opened the book halfway and peered at it. We begin by beginning, I guess. They're a good escape, and they're good for relaxing. They can take you to another world. They really do. And then they, you can find peace, you can find joy, you can laugh. And I think you have a sense of having more control because television, you might be into something like into a movie, next thing you know you're bombarded with a thousand commercials and just kind of takes you away from it. Now, this book is about not having books. books I know. I and think it's horrible. What would you do without that? I can't imagine what it would be like not to be able to read and not to have books. It's horrible. Very important to me. No, no, yeah. It's, it, that's what kind of kind of got me juiced about the outside world, you know. That's, I mean, I came from a small town, and so I was able to learn about all kinds of different things with books, you know. That was my only resource to do that, you know. For some people, books broaden horizons, even change lives. For other people, books become an obsession. Emily Gunnison tells us about a group of people whose lives revolve around a series of children's books, and her sister is one of them. A couple of years ago, my sister Kate and I rented an apartment together in North Oakland. Kate was a normal kind of roommate in most regards. She had a regular job in San Francisco by day. She cooked dinner with me at night. She played with the cat. Generally, we had a great time. But there was this. She was obsessed with a series of books from her childhood. She collected them and assembled them on the shelf in the living room. Betsy Tacey. Heaven to Betsy. Betsy was a junior. Betsy in the great world. These books tell the story of three girls, Betsy, Tacey, and Tib, who grew up in a Minnesota town in the early 1900s. Maud Hart Lovelace wrote eight books that start when the girls are five and finish with Betsy's wedding. Nice and all, I guess. But I didn't understand this obsession. These are kids' books. Betsy and Joe is probably one of my favorite books. Um, it's their senior year in high school, and Betsy and Joe finally start going steady. Joe does kiss her at the end, and although Betsy isn't a great believer in kissing boys, she does kiss Joe because he's special. Kate's love of these books doesn't stop with reading them repeatedly. She's also one of at least 100 people. Oh, who are we kidding? 100 women who comprise the Betsy Tacey list serve. They correspond by email to talk about the books, and they do some really strange stuff, like the ornament exchange at Christmas time. Okay, the ornament exchange is something we do every year. People, you pick out an ornament that has to do something with the book. People will give ice skates because they went ice skating a lot. People will give um, an ornament of a pencil because Betsy was a writer. The ornaments you're supposed to give to a character in the book and you're supposed to be giving from a character in the book. Then, when you receive your ornament, you post to the list, posing as the character in the book, as in, Dear Tony, I am happy to hear that you are doing so well as an actor. I love the rowboat ornament. And yes, I do remember rowing and singing at Murmuring Lake. Love, Betsy. This really happened. I love Kate, but she's not like me. So, when my friend Matt and I planned a cross-country drive this winter, I asked Kate if she thought some of her listserv friends in other states would want to contribute to a radio story, in part because I think their group is so strange, but also because I wanted to figure out this sister of mine.
Kate posted our route to the list, mostly Interstate 10 across the south to New Orleans before we headed north to New York, and several replied, eager to discuss Betsy Tacey with a member's sister. Matt and I drove into Phoenix on Christmas afternoon. My impression was that the entire city was made up of varying shades of brown. Kathleen Waldron had agreed to talk between Christmas Day events at her house. The weather was warm, so we sat in the backyard to talk. There was a row of palm trees against the fence. Kathleen wore a Santa sweatshirt with matching earrings. Kathleen's introduction to the books sounded similar to Kate's. She found them at the library, and then she read them a million times. So I asked her why she liked these books so much more than all of the other books she read growing up. These books delve so much deeper into growing up. They're not glossed over. They deal with themes that every kid pretty much deals with growing up. Um, Betsy is, she's you know, a very lucky teenager in many ways. She has a very happy family. She has, um, life goes fairly smoothly for her in lots of ways. But she has her heartache. She has her, her depressions. She has her really not knowing what to do in different situations. And even you know, panicking at some points and doing the wrong thing and having to learn lessons the hard way. The books really taught me a lot about consequences. Kathleen is a psych professor, and she has actually used the Betsy Tacey stories as case studies in her classes to talk about the interactions between kids and their parents. No one else in Kathleen's world knows Betsy Tacey books the way she does, so she likes having this kind of connection with the people on the list. My life personally has changed quite a bit in the last two or three years because my friends were either working part-time or were staying at home with their kids. And we socialized a lot. We would get together at parks when my kids were little and have lunch, you know, a couple times a week. Or we would just do stuff. We don't do that anymore. And so it, the list has been rather nice for me because I don't see my physical, you know, real-life friends, shall we say. And this way I do have this kind of continuity. Kathleen has met about 15 people from the list when they were in the area or when she was traveling herself. My sister was actually stuck in Phoenix on September 11th and went hiking with Kathleen. As much as I make fun of Kate for her membership in the Betsy Tacey Society, I'm still a little jealous that she has this bond with all of these other people. You know, gosh, if Kate's having a down day, she can send off to the list, I'm having a crappy day, someone send me a hug, you know, or send me warm thoughts, and I mean, I'll guarantee you she'll have 30 emails in an hour. And geez, doesn't that perk you up, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so yeah, it's awesome. It's absolutely awesome. People out there, they take the time and they actually really do care. So it's, it seems really bizarre and strange and unexplainable, but it's just kind of the way it is. When Kathleen's family started arriving for Christmas dinner, Matt and I said goodbye and headed out, but not before Kathleen handed me a copy of Heaven to Betsy. It's the fifth book in the series. A good place to start if you're coming to them as an adult, she said. I thanked her, and Matt and I made our way to El Paso. The next morning, as we crossed western Texas over those stark desert hills, I started reading. It wasn't half bad. Betsy was starting high school. She had a crush on a boy. She and Tacy were meeting people and going to parties in that 1906 kind of way. Matt and I drove into Houston a few days after Christmas, where I met two original list members, Husha Moore and Michelle Thomas. We met at Husha's house, which sits in what she calls a transitional neighborhood. Her partner designed their home in the spirit of Frank Lloyd Wright. Across the street, a couple of men were sitting in the front yard playing dominoes, as Husha says they do every day, rain or shine. 
When we sat down inside, I asked Michelle why these books were so important to her. So much of the situations really, really happened. You know, she really went back to her childhood and they really did climb the big hill and die uh, sand after Easter. And they did all those things. And so it, I think it makes the stories very readable and compelling because they're based upon truth. And they really happened. There's not that great uh, a leap of credibility. Like Michelle, Husha found truth in the books, not only when she was a child. She also found inspiration, especially in the sixth book. Betsy, in spite of herself, is about the traditional thing where you try to be what someone thinks you ought to be and find out that that doesn't work. And I know I came out at 39, and when I came out, I remember rereading that book and going, yeah, I can't do this anymore. I have to be who I really am. So they still speak to me. Don't pay attention to what society says you have to be. Be who your heart says you have to be, and you'll be happy. One of the interesting things about the Betsy Tacey books is that Betsy grows up with parents and teachers encouraging her to do exactly what she wants to do, which is to become a writer, instead of pressing her to be a traditional housewife. No one questions her ability to be what she wants to be. This is exactly what the list does for its members. When I left on my trip, Kate was in the middle of applying to law schools, and so many people in her day-to-day life were telling her how hard it's going to be to get in. But on the list, everyone has complete faith in her. No matter what a list member's family and friends are saying, they have their own version of Betsy's family cheering them on. And who wouldn't want that? Before I left Houston, I admitted to Husha and Michelle that I was really starting to enjoy these books, but they shouldn't tell Kate. I didn't want to admit that she wasn't nuts. I was still reading the Betsy books as Matt and I drove through New Orleans and then up to New York. Alas, when I got home, I was talking to Kate when she said, I hear you're enjoying Betsy Tacey. I guess no secret is sacred with the list. Emily Gunnison is a high school teacher and writer in the East Bay. That's all for this month's edition of B-Side. Our crew is Dave Gilson, Lissa Mudd, and Claudine Zapp. Tamara Keith is our senior producer. Our theme music was composed by Dave Kaufman. B-Side will return on April 16th with a show about unexpected words of wisdom. In the meantime, On the Record returns April 2nd. I'm Mia Lobel. Thanks for listening.